0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas, and I'm your host for today's interview. And today I'm speaking with Allison Brantley. Dr. Brantley is an associate professor of history and is the director of honors and interdisciplinary initiatives at the University of Laverne, and is the author of Brewing a Boycott, How a Grassroots Coalition Fought Coors and Remade America. American consumer activism, which came out with the University of North Carolina Press in 2021. Welcome to the New Books Network, Allie. Good to have you.
1: Thank you. Really good to be here, Steve.
0: Why don't we start, as we always do on the New Books Network, but just hearing a little bit about you as an author. Tell us a little about yourself and about your background as a scholar and maybe what got you into history.
1: Yeah. um, So I think probably what got me into history I have to blame my high school history teacher. I would lay all of the blame there. Um, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and and that's sort of an indication of why I ended up writing about Coors in particular. But um, I had a a history teacher in high school in my AP history classes for a couple of years. And he had a PhD in the history of the American West. And he had taught at the university level for some time and that had um, come to the high school to teach. And I just was, amazed by the kind of content that we discussed, he raised really big questions about history, and silences and sources. And we weren't just doing rote memorization, you know, the thing that we hear students always hate about history, we were not doing that. And so I got the bug, I thought I would um, pursue a history major in college, I went to University of Notre Dame. uh, But I figured that I'd probably move on to public policy or something that you know, my parents told me would be more realistic or Um, productive or you know uh, better able to get me a job Um, but after spending after graduating i ended up spending a year in el paso texas i was doing a an americorps volunteer program and i was thinking after i did this time in el paso i would go on to public policy but i found myself being constantly amazed and interested by the local history of the borderlands in particular i was applying a lot of lessons from history classes I'd taken in college and really wondering, you know, how we got to a point in uh, at this point, it was like 2009 or 10, um, where we had immigration policies and, and border divisions that we had at that point. And I realized that what I wanted to, you know, really devote my time to was studying history and understanding the deeper past and and how we got from one point to another. Um, I was really interested in labor organizing in the borderlands, and so I continued on to pursue my uh, Ph.D. in the history of labor borderlands, the West at Yale. Um, and, and so that's that's sort of the the, sh- the the brief answer to that. How I ended up becoming a, a historian, and um, I was really excited to graduate from Yale and then be able to come back to the West and, and live in Los Angeles and teach at Laverne. Uh, I feel like I'm sort of back in that place where I'm just immersed in a, a place with a lot of history that I'm really interested in diving into. And, and so I constantly find myself kind of coming back to that experience when I was in El Paso, uh, just a young uh, you know, recent undergrad, uh, just really feeling a lot of hunger for knowledge and, and hunger for history.
0: And you mentioned this a minute ago, uh, you know, being from Boulder, being from Colorado and being from the West. But maybe you can go a little bit more in depth. I'm curious what brought you to the topic of this book. Why a book about Coors and specifically about labor organizing at and surrounding Coors specifically?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think... if you told me, you know, 15 or 20 years ago that I would write a book about Coors, I would have been indignant. <laughs> um, you know, in Colorado, the Coors Brewing Company has an incredibly um, ubiquitous presence, basically. There's a lot of places named after the family. Coors Field is where the Colorado Rockies play. Uh, in Boulder, we're not very far away, even from the brewery itself, the flagship brewery. and you know, I'd never really had much interest in the history of Coors. I'd sort of taken the company for granted. But when I was in graduate school, I think it was in my first year, I was doing a directed reading course with my advisor, Steve Pitty. And there was a passing reference in a text on Mexican American history in the West to a Chicano boycott and and, and sort of action against Coors in the 1960s. And I sort of found myself being like, how do I not know about this? You know, why isn't there a broader conversation in Colorado, at least in the circles I was in, as you know, someone living in Boulder, about this particular action and the big questions and complaints that Chicano boycotters were raising about Coors? Uh, we all know in Colorado that Coors is a conservative family; they're engaged in politics. Uh, but but this revelation, when when I was reading this book, it doesn't mean I discovered it. Lots of people have you know, talked about the boycott before this, but I found myself really interested in understanding the history of that particular movement, um, understanding what it meant for the state of Colorado, which doesn't, in its recent history, does not have a very strong labor movement. Um, and, And so I ended up initially thinking that I would, study the the boycott a little bit more to write uh, one chapter in a book. And it, it really obviously became the whole book because as I pulled on different threads, I realized that this is a much bigger movement and more significant movement than I really had expected.
0: Well, let's get into the story that you tell in this book a bit. And why don't we just begin... With the beginning, let's start with the history of Coors Brewing itself. What is their story? And maybe take us up until around the middle part of the 20th century. What are their roots and sort of where do they stand uh, in the post-war era? Mm
1: -hmm. Yes. So, um, you know, the the Coors Brewing Company is named for its founder, Adolf Coors, um, the first. There's been a couple of them over the years. Uh, Coors himself was a stowaway immigrant from Prussia um, who arrived in the United States, I think in about 1868, sometime in the mid-19th century. Uh, When he made it to the United States, he already had some experience in brewing. And so he headed west first to Chicago, where he worked in various breweries and then to Colorado, which, you know, in the 1870s was really this like early mining boom town um, and the railroads were coming through. And and so he ended up getting into the brewing business to serve the local population of Denverites. Uh, He got in to business with another immigrant named Jacob Schuler, and they opened what would become the Coors Brewing Company in 1873. So the Coors Brewing Company itself is, you know, almost as old as the state of Colorado, and it's become an institution, I think because of this long history that it has. Uh, the brewing company established in 1873 expanded incrementally over the years to serve not only people in Denver, but to, to get some of its beer to folks in mountain towns. Uh, at one point, in order to sustain this expansion, uh, Adolf Coors famously rerouted local the local Clear Creek uh, to avoid flooding and destruction of the brewery. And so the, the brewery continues to build out a consumer base throughout the late 19th century. And then in the early 20th century, like every other brewery or alcohol-related business in the country, Coors faced the temperance movement, and the oncoming storm of prohibition Um, the temperance movement made huge strides in colorado and and really throughout the american west well before national prohibition so in colorado prohibition began in 1916 and then it would continue to 1933 and um, for adolf Coors and his family obviously this was a huge challenge that they had to overcome and uh, that they felt really sort of burdened by the demands of the state or the restrictions of the state. But Coors Brewery, unlike many others in the country, was able to survive prohibition. They did so by producing malted milk to make candy. Uh, They produced near beer. They also had a porcelain production facility. So they, they were diversifying in a variety of ways and they were able to survive through the 1930s and then kind of rebuild after Prohibition ended. But it's worth noting that for this brewery and for other large breweries that we know of today, like, you know, the, like Budweiser or the, um, the Bush family or the Miller family, um, Prohibition is a really formative experience in terms of solidifying a commitment to the free market and an antagonism to state intervention. Uh, I think without prohibition we wouldn't have a Coors family that is later very much committed to free market politics and, and committed to the development of a, a new right movement. Um, so they come out of prohibition, they're determined to continue to expand their business and, and by this point we're talking now about a second generation of Coors men and the company continues to expand, um, begins to expand their the distribution of their beer outside of Colorado uh, I, I didn't mention this before, but Coors Brewing Company, up until the you know, late 20th century, did not pasteurize its beer. It was a cold-filtered beer, um, so just filtered through pads of cotton, and actually, you know, we could probably discuss this later, but filtered through pads that of asbestos um, it, it, because they believed pasteurization was actually not good for the beer. So the beer had to stay very cold, so they only distributed locally or within um, a radius that was reasonable to keep the beer uh, refrigerated. And and by 1976, Coors only distributed in 14 Western states. Uh, So at mid-century, if we were to sort of walk up to the Coors Brewery Brewery in Golden, we would see an operation that was growing, it was becoming more factory-like, not like microbreweries that we know today, um, setting its sights on regional consumers and really seeking to compete against other breweries to retake uh, an alcohol consuming market after prohibition.
0: And you mentioned that Coors at this point is only available in I think you said fourteen Western states. And you talk a bit about this in the book about how, for people you know not in those fourteen states, Coors was sort of a marker of uh, if, if not status but a real marker of the West. I, I yeah. you know I, I had I had your book on my coffee table for the last couple of weeks, and my mother in law who grew up in Massachusetts she saw it. And she said, "Oh, you know when I was growing up, if you could get Coors at your party or in your fridge, growing up in Massachusetts in the '60s, you know that was a big deal." that seemed like a, you know, it was a special beer. It was a really sought-after yeah. thing. And you talk about that sort of, that status in your book as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean um, so probably in the 1950s, Coors was probably available in like you know, seven to 10 states and they slowly start to expand. Uh, but yeah, I think in part because of this mystique, because it was unavailable. And then later the, the movie Smokey and the Bandit um, gave Coors this, kind of hip vibe um there's a a line that i quote i think in uh, maybe on the first page of the book that i really love from i think it's the rocky mountain news you know saying that Coors is just as chic as like a walk um or other things that yuppies like so it it has this um interesting allure for consumers outside of that distribution era area Mm -hmm. and they smuggle it back and it's actually not safe to do that the company is Often placing ads in outside markets saying do not buy our beer if you see it here because it's not pasteurized, it's maybe warmed up, it's not safe to drink. Um, But of course people still did it and I also talk in my book, my uncles did it. Um, They lived in Iowa and they would smuggle the beer back every winter.
0: And this is also fundamentally a book about activism and about labor organizing. So in this sort of earlier history of Coors, the kind of first half of the 20th century history of the brewery, what is the story of labor organizing in this company in the early days of these kind of disputes that you talk about in the book between labor and management? What were the issues that were at stake here and why did workers at Coors eventually land on boycotting as Mm -hmm. a viable tactic?
1: Yeah. So the the history of labor organizing at Coors is, uh, first and foremost, a very contentious history uh, over the course of the 20th century. There had been some small uh, efforts to organize the brewery prior to Prohibition. And then after Prohibition ended, one of the things on a, a national level that was happening was that the National Brewery Workers Union was really working to reorganize breweries as they reopened, um, and so in 1933 and 1934, a brewery workers local 366 was chartered at the Coors Brewing Company, and it covered basically people in uh, production uh, and and maintenance facilities in the brewery. And you know, company lore says that Adolph Coors invited the union in, and uh, that's not not really the case. The union had to to push its way in and fight to to win a contract. Uh, But after that initial organizing effort in the 1930s, Local 366 was known and often derided as a company union, as a union that basically just did what the company wanted. Uh, And that was maybe the case until the early 1950s, when um, we start to see more frequent clashes between labor and management throughout Coors' operations. And, you know, I really see this as uh, resulting from the company's effort to start to expand vigorously in terms of its dis- distribution in the 1950s. So it's building more facilities, it's trying to ratchet up how many uh, barrels of beer it's brewing and workers want better wages, they want more flexible shifts because you have to work basically, somebody has to be in the brewery at 24 hours a day. And so finally, these tensions ca- kind of come to a head in 1957, uh, contract negotiations between the brewery workers and management fall apart, and the local union goes on strike. And it's pretty clear to the local union, as soon as they go on strike, that it's it's going to be a tough battle. The company retains uh, a pretty well-known anti-union anti-union lawyer. His name's Irwin Lerton, um, and it's clear that the company is going to try to use the strike basically to restrict the power of the union. And so union leaders do what is a really familiar thing um, in this period for labor unions, and they call for a boycott to supplement the strike. So in the labor movement, since the late 19th century, boycotts had really been seen as uh, great complements to a strike. If you couldn't get the employer to budge, you could hit them in their pocketbook. Um, And Local 366 does this, it's I think it's a sort of natural move for them, but it feels very urgent, because they're up against what's very clearly a, a non an anti-union uh, management um, approach. And so they go on strike, they call for the boycott. And this is to, as far as I could find in the archival record, the first time that um, a regional boycott was called against Coors. And it was the first of many, as I describe in the book. And the union is on strike for 117 days Their boycott irritates management, to be sure. Um, And then they eventually settle a contract that weakens the power of the union, unfortunately. Um, One of the consequences of this first strike, which signifies, I think, a real turning point in labor management relations, is that the union itself becomes more radical out of it. Uh, But we're also going to see even worse labor management relations over the following decades.
0: And in those following decades, a lot of the continued activism against the Coors Corporation is going to be led by Chicano activists. So how and why did they use boycotts and other tactics against Coors in the 1960s? And then how does the company react to this kind of new wave of activism uh, uh, in the 60s and 70s?
1: So Chicano activists boycott Coors for very different reasons than the labor movement. In fact, um, these are sometimes both parallel and um, contentious boycott um, efforts in the 1960s. Um, Chicanos ended up boycotting Coors probably starting in 1966, 67, um, because they contended that they and other people of color in Colorado could not access good jobs at Coors. Um, And they charged that Coors was practicing pretty blatant employment discrimination. And they also charged that the union, Local 366, in on this kind of employment discrimination because they just hired through a a union pipeline that brought in family and friends of people already working in the brewery. And in the late 60s, employment data backed this up. Um, It was clear that the company was not hiring communities of color at parity with their local population. And uh, mostly this is Mexican American or Chicano uh, workers, but also includes Black and Native American uh, workers. And, and, but the Chicano movement sort of leads the way in terms of boycotting because of these issues. Um, at first Chicano leaders like Corky Gonzalez with the crusade for justice, uh, and other activists with the American GI forum tried to take legal action against Coors. And they would find as other activists would find over time that you know, the company retains uh pretty, uh, aggressive lawyers and representation and and wasn't really interested in settling. I mean, eventually they did, but legal action didn't really get them anywhere. And so inspired by other boycott campaigns within the civil rights movements, particularly the United Farm Workers uh, boycotts of table grapes, these Chicano activists began to pivot towards a boycott campaign against Coors. Uh, this was a much more radical or militant boycott campaign than that of the local union in the 50s. And the, it ended up spreading the boycott beyond the boundaries of Colorado. Um, Chicano organizations like the GI Forum and more militant student organizations like UMAS, the United Mexican American Students Group, uh, began to spread the boycott call beyond Colorado. And, and so we would we start to see boycott newsletters and articles in student newspapers throughout California, for example. Um, And you asked about how the company reacted. At first, the company reacted with disinterest. Um, They initially shrugged it off. They said, you know, this isn't a lot of people who are boycotting us. Uh, They would often say "Our, our beer is so good that nobody could actually sustain a strong boycott because the product speaks for itself. Uh, But over time, they started to feel the pinch because of this boycott as it expanded. Uh, They engaged in targeted outreach of Mexican American communities to convince them that they were uh, better than boycotters were alleging. They hired a former president of the civil rights organization, LULOC, um, as a PR representative. They established scholarship funds. Um, So we do see the company changing. And one, one thing that I argue in the book is that the Chicano boycott in particular on Coors, uh, as well as like the uh, gay and lesbian or queer boycott had an unintended effect of making legible this particular consumer market to the company. Um, So that because of the boycott, this base of potential consumers becomes very clear um, in the eyes of the company. And so the company works hard to win them back and retain them. Um, And then sort of later, later down the line, we start to see Uh, industry-wide segmented marketing campaigns that I think sort of come out of this thread of activists um, and company and their back and forth.
0: And one of the important characters in this era is Joseph Coors, Joe Coors, one of uh, uh, Adolf Coors's grandsons. And by the 1970s, he's this kind of increasingly prominent member of the family He's sort of slowly becoming, uh, dare I say, kind of the the, the face of Coors Mm -hmm. Brewing and of the New Right movement as well. So tell us a bit about him. What role does he play in kind of reframing the boycott and the activist tactics?
1: So some boycotters would say and have said to me in interviews that the greatest thing that Coors ever did was give the boycott Joe Coors. Um, Joe Coors was sort of notorious for a lot of reasons. As you mentioned, um, he's the face of the family. He ends up being uh, a symbol of the new right. Uh, And that's just because he becomes very outspoken and public in his conservative politics. Um, Joe Coors is a third generation Coors executive, and he really defied a family tradition of not speaking publicly about politics. In the 1960s or so, he got more and more involved in causes to support uh, his vision of a free market, anti-communist United States, uh, and ends up, because of these activities, drawing more and more attention to himself, his family, and the beer. Uh, So a couple of things that he did that, that were particularly problematic for boycotters and and brought more attention to him and the boycott. In 1966, he um, gained a seat on the University of Colorado's Board of Regents um, and he engaged in some high profile battles against uh, the Students for Democratic Society. Um, He tried to deny tenure to their faculty advisor, for example. Um, He ended up sort of expanding his vision of politics beyond Colorado and by 1973 he and a number of other uh, figures in the new right founded the, the think tank, the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Coors provided the seed money for that. That same year, he attempt uh, he and others founded a, an alternative uh, television station called TVN or Television News Inc. That was meant to counter liberal bias in news and was kind of the predecessor to Fox News. Um, and then in 1975, Joe Coors, uh, was nominated for and, and was really vying for a seat on the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And uh, because by 1975 he was pretty well known as a contentious figure, his confirmation hearing was also quite contentious before Congress. Um, it exposed a lot of his engagement in the conservative movement, made it very clear to the public that he was becoming this leader in the new right. One. Uh, journalist with the New York Times said that, you know, if you look closely enough, you'll see that everything circles around him in this new conservative movement. He was denied a seat on the CPB, but continued to have a really outsized presence on the conservative movement into the 1980s, um, because he was also very close with Ronald Reagan and served as an informal advisor. And so because of all of this, uh, boycotters were able to not only expand their grievances and narratives um, but they were also able to really cast their consumer activism as not just about getting a job um, not just about getting a better contract um, but also about pushing back against a rising tide of conservatism and so they were able to see their consumer activism as a sort of vector for political activism and this brought in a lot more uh, boycott supporters it led to the boycott becoming Uh, better known and expanding nationally. And so Joe Coors himself, uh, even as he's trying trying to control the boycott, ends up adding fuel to the fire in the 70s and 80s in particular.
0: I really loved learning uh, uh, by reading your book about the the sort of all the ways that that the Coors family in the 1970s was wrapped up in the sort of the the rise of of movement conservatism in the United States. I lived in Denver about a decade ago, and I remember driving around at the time and seeing lawn signs for, uh, you know, Coors family members running for uh, local office and thinking to myself, is that the the, the brewery people? And so then reading your book now and learning the deeper history here that, you know, people from the Coors family running on the right that this is not a new thing. This goes back fifty years and more. All
1: oh, right. Yeah. I mean, and I think really we can date their conservatism to prohibition and just sort of mm-hmm. building, right, right, right. building over the course of the twentieth century. I, you probably, maybe, were there. When Peter Coors ran for Senate in two thousand four. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Maybe.
1: Um, yeah, that was a contentious race um, for a, a lot of the same reasons as Joe Coors was contentious.
0: So by the late 70s and the 1980s as you're explaining the boycott movement had diversified and had gone national in in many ways. How and why did this happen and what are the long-term effects, the long-term implications of the broadening of this movement? What happens after uh, after the 1970s and after Joe Coors kind of has his kind of coming out party as a conservative <laughs> activist?
1: Yeah. So I mean, the why is, you know, as we started discussing because of Joe Coors, I think because the political implications of the boycott ended up becoming much more significant for lots of activists, um, not just in the labor movement, not just in the Chicano movement, you know, this was a period where, you know, it really seemed like the conservative movement was gaining not only a foothold, but maybe a, a grip on national politics. And so to boycott Coors was one way to sort of register that protest and feel like you were part of a movement that was pushing back against this. Um, So it expands nationally because the political stakes are higher. Uh, As as the Boston Globe put it in the early 80s, like at this point, anyone on the left can find something to gripe about when it comes to Coors. Um, But it also expands nationally because the company itself is expanding its distribution, um, looking to move into markets in the southeast and the Northeast in particular. And so for boycotters who started their movement in Colorado, uh, built up boycott strongholds in California, as this starts to happen, they also start to tap into or activate national networks of activists. So they use magazines, they use um, the radio, um, they use different networks, especially labor networks to activate boycotters even before Coors arrives in their home state. And so people feel a lot of I think, commitment to this boycott, not only because of the politics of it, but because it allows them to be part of this national network of activists. So in Ohio or New York or New Jersey, um, even before Coors trucks started you know, rolling into the state, the national boycott was already there. Um, there were coalitions being built between um, Latinos, between queer activists, feminists, labor activists, students, um, all preparing for Coors' arrival and really preparing to push back against it. And uh, for me, that was actually one of the the most significant uh, findings for me as I was dealing with you know moving through different archives was realizing that over time this boycott, uh, a boycott on a beer from you know, the middle of Colorado ended up, providing a platform for really vibrant but sometimes flawed uh, coalition building and it also demonstrates that there, there is the possibility of coalition building even in these conservative contexts of the 1980s
0: and in 1977 in one of the more dramatic moments of the book the workers at the course plant in golden colorado they go on strike they walk out and you describe this as a pretty pivotal moment so can you describe a bit what leads to this point and then what are the effects of of this strike
1: right so even as the the boycott itself becomes political and a lot of other constituencies become committed to the boycott there's still a lot of problems within the brewery itself in golden Uh, After the 1957 strike, there's about 20 years of tension in the brewery. In fact, it just gets worse and worse. Um, One thing that we haven't talked about or haven't mentioned so far is that in this period, the company starts to mandate the use of polygraph tests for um, grievances on the job, for new hires. And their um, former workers attested in affidavits that the polygraph tests included questions about sexuality. And and so there was just this feeling in the brewery that not only was the company engaging in really problematic politics from some people's perspective, but the brewery was also, and managers in the brewery were trying to control workers from the moment they arrived to the moment they left, um, their shifts or even beyond that. And so these tensions just build and build over these 20 years, the union itself becomes more militant and more bold. And when the contract is up for renewal in 1976, There are a number of different uh, things that happen to lead to increased tensions, including um, an election to recertify the union under state law. And uh, eventually the union walks out on April 5th, 1977. And this is, I think, pivotal for a lot of reasons. One, it's this incredible moment of defiance. in a brewery that had attempted to control workers. Um, as one woman put it to me in an interview, it was a moment of jubilation for workers. They had finally done it. And because this happened in the context of a boycott that had been you know, brewing, I guess, <laughs> uh, for you know, a couple of decades, uh, it ended up becoming another flashpoint for boycotters. Um, while strikers were on strike, they again you know, uh, faced off against a company that was Deeply anti-union, and the only way they could really sustain their movement was through boycott organizing. And uh, boycott leaders and union leaders, like a, a man named Dave Sickler, ended up sending strikers across the West to build boycott coalitions in Los Angeles and Albuquerque and you know, San Francisco and in other cities. And they were able to to build local coalitions that were, you know, able to send support back to strikers, and also amplify these various narratives about Coors' misdeeds. Um, You know, in the end, and this is sort of an interesting, this was interesting for me to contend with. um, In the end, the strike failed, and the union was ousted, it was decertified. And and so some of what we talk about when we talk about this boycott is a story of failure. Um, But even though the strike ended in December of 1978, the boycott continued. Uh, people were even more determined to boycott Coors after they had officially busted the union, and and that's also that's also what makes the strike pivotal because after the strike ends and you know we move into the 1980s, there's a lot of motivation for people who support the labor movement to continue to boycott as maybe retribution in some ways uh, for the weakening power of labor, which they attribute to Coors on multiple levels.
0: And you you mentioned endpoints a second ago, and as you say in the book, you know, kind of pinning an endpoint to the story is not an easy thing to do. So, when does the boycott end, or does it really end at all? I mean, it seems like a simple question, but as you explain in the book, this is a very complicated answer.
1: Yeah, if you talk to some people who are active in the boycott campaign, they would say it's never, it's not over. They still won't drink Coors. They still won't allow it in their house. but it's a yeah, it's a it's a complicated answer because the boycott ends at different points for different people. Um, in 1984, uh, prominent Hispanic organizations, and I say Hispanic here because they describe themselves as Hispanic, and they're more conservative in their politics, uh, as well as prominent Black organizations, sign agreements with Coors. Um, basically, they're called fair share agreements in which the company says, okay, we'll return profits back to your community. um, But basically you have to like end the boycott. Um, So in 1984, this happens with these two separate communities, um, causing a lot of outrage among boycotters. Then in 1987, the company signs an agreement with the AFL-CIO, which most, many boycott activists see as uh, the AFL-CIO completely selling out um, because they because this is a coalition-backed movement, there's a belief that one community can't sign an agreement with Coors on behalf of everybody else. Um, So even though these formal agreements kind of end the boycott on Coors' terms, boycotters out in the world, out in the consumer market, just refuse to end their boycott. They, They do not believe that the company had really changed at all. They don't believe that the Coors family had changed its politics or responded to any of the critiques of boycotters. Um, and so they see these settlements as uh, fragmented and not in the spirit of coalition. Uh, so so the boycott does continue. I mean, when I was writing the book at first, I thought, OK, 1987 is the end point And and then uh, the deeper I dove into archives, I realized I had to just keep following this thread. I mean, um, even today, more recently, um, maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later. But uh, because of the Coors family's politics, every once in a while, there is another sort of wave of calls to boycott Coors. So there's, I don't know that it'll ever really end um, truly. Uh, and I, I don't think it, it ended for most people who were really engaged in the boycott in in the late 20th century.
0: Well, that's kind of what I wanted to, to ask next is to, to see if you could bring the story up to uh, the present a bit. And I'm curious, we talked a little bit about the Coors family's ongoing uh, involvement in conservative politics, but you know, to, to paint with a broad brush, what is the reputation of the Coors family and of Coors Brewing today? Um, are Have the discriminatory practices that you described, have they ended at the company? Is there any kind of ongoing activism targeting Coors in the early 21st century? You mentioned a, a minute ago that it kind of comes and goes, but is there any possibility for another sustained movement, do you think?
1: So one of the things that is sort of an interesting outcome of the boycott is that increasingly the company has worked to distance itself from the family. Um, not an easy thing to do when they share the same name. Um, the Brewing company definitely came out of this boycott a better company. And some boycotters sort of boast that that's because of the work that they did, um, that they really pressured the company to take seriously consumers of color, to take seriously the concerns of queer employees and consumers and you know, Coors was one of the first companies nationally to offer same-sex health care coverage for its employees and their, their partners. Um, Coors has a lot of really great scholarship programs, and they ended up kind of leading the way and winning awards in the 1990s for these efforts. Um, you know, there are definitely boycotters who say all of this is disingenuous, but I, I think in reality that the company has really done um, an impressive job at turning its reputation around um, and, and indeed in a turn of events that still shocks me um, Coors Light sponsors Denver's pride parade every year so uh, they have done a lot of work to rehabilitate their image um, the the issue is, is is that the Coors family is of course still um, somewhat associated with the, the, the brewery and now Coors is actually owned by Miller which is owned by I'm not gonna, I might not be correct with that, but right, they're just part of this massive consolidation. Um, But the the family itself is still engaged in uh, conservative politics. They have a number of um, philanthropic endeavors that support sort of like um, family first Christian policies. Um, And so I think there are opportunities for boycotters that we see happen um, throughout the 1990s and early 2000s because boycotters identify the fact that, you know, the the company or the family is still benefiting from the profits of the company, and they're using those profits to invest in conservative causes. Uh, And every once in a while, this becomes more public, like when Peter Coors ran for Senate in 2004. um, The family has, you know, been known to donate to the Trump campaign efforts more recently. And, And so I think there's still space for boycotters to make you know, the same arguments they did over 50 years ago, but we don't really see this kind of sustained coalitional activism, you know, in part because the company itself has done a very good job at, uh, you know, laying those criticisms to rest, I think. So I think your book
0: does a good job of showing how, you know, vibrant labor, activism can take place during an era that is often sort of seen as a nadir for the labor movement mm-hmm. in the United States in the, the, the sort of 1970s and 1980s. And I'm curious, what you see as the long term implications of the movements that you talk about in the book for labor activism and consumer activism and the kind of cross section of these two movements, what are sort of the, 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 the long term implications or effects of this, do you think?
1: I think this history of, of the boycott and its coalition underscore really both the strengths and the weaknesses of both of these movements. Um, you know I think they highlight creative organizing like you mentioned in an era where that's not universally the case, but they also highlight the the real weaknesses of you know a boycott that can be sustained over a long period of time but doesn't really win major things from from its target or from its company. Um, but one thing that I, I think is really key that we see come out of this boycott is that that the labor movement in this context is that it's strongest when engaging in intentional coalition, um, when not trying to sort of take uh, benefits or territory away from other communities, but actually really engaging in sort of creative opportunities to build coalition and be in collaboration. Um, In the early 1970s, this happens with the Teamsters of all unions, which are sort of notoriously conservative, aligning themselves with queer activists, with gay and lesbian activists in San Francisco, Harvey Milk. Um, And this actually allows the Teamsters to build stronger contracts um, and to rehabilitate their image. And and the same goes for the AFL-CIO, especially for union members and leaders in Los Angeles. I think through the boycott organizing in the late 70s and early 80s, they really see the potential and the need for cross-class, cross-racial coalition building. Um, And so somebody like Dave Sickler, who headed up the boycott for Local 366 and then ended up being a regional director for the AFL-CIO, he helps to Um, lead the way is maybe not the phrase I want to use, but he helps to listen. He he really takes seriously the concerns of unorganized immigrants and Latinos. He listens to other communities and works to help bring them into local organizing. And and so some of the later coalitional activism we see in the labor movement, I think, is linked to um, the ways in which the boycott made clear the need for coalitional activism. Uh, I also think that, you know, the one thing about this boycott too, especially as it became a coalition-backed boycott, is that it helped to reshape the possibilities and narratives of consumer activism. You know, a boycott didn't need to just be for um, getting a better contract or getting a job at a place, um, but it could be a broader form of political organizing and resistance, um, that it could be a way to use use anti-corporate activism and engage in political protest. And and so I think this boycott, not by itself, but in conjunction with other developments and opportunities um, in this moment, helps to expand the possibility of coalitional and consumer activism as organizers looked into the 21st century.
0: And then as we begin to wrap up, um, I always like to ask my guests to think about their book from the perspective of some from from one of their readers. So, you know, someone who reads this book and then thinks back on it maybe a year after they read it or a couple years after they read it. What do you hope might be one big takeaway that they come away from this book understanding or come away remembering sometime down the line?
1: I think probably first and foremost, it would be that um, boycotts can be really powerful tools of resistance and solidarity making. Um, it, it doesn't mean that they have to achieve tangible or um, instrumental aims because most boycotts don't do that. Um, but they're not always going to be, uh, as one historian has said, like putative failures. So boycotts can be really powerful. Uh, I think the other thing that I've been thinking more about lately um, thinking a little bit about like the work of Lane Windham, is that we really need, I think as historians of the labor movement and late 20th century, um, we need to examine failures and, and really think about what it means to write histories of movements that aren't uh, real successes, uh, because I think they these moments underscore um, the evolution of the labor movement, they underscore the, the back and forth and local and regional missteps of organizers. And I think help us to, to better understand, at least in this case, the emergence of neoliberal policies in the late 20th century. And, and so even though they're not successful, um, even though maybe boycotts are successful only in expressive terms, they deserve our attention because I think they reveal a lot about context and maybe missed opportunities for alliances or coalitions.
0: And then finally, I always like to get a preview from my guests about what they've been working on uh, since finishing the, the the book. So what are you working on now? What have you been uh, researching and writing about since finishing this book last year?
1: So It's been a little bit difficult because of COVID. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, yeah. I was trying to pivot to, to new things, but uh, I, I've been really interested in um, continuing to think about the trajectory of the labor movement in the late 20th century, um, especially in sort of urban contexts in the West, um, and and uh, organized labor's efforts to diversify or innovate um, their organizing in the face of like really sustained and ongoing cuts and um, d- dwindling membership bases. Um, and I'm tr- hoping to do this through the lens of small scale organizing campaigns and often organizing campaigns that are not successful. Um, so in particular, uh, right now I'm, I'm working on and, and hoping for this to kind of be maybe an article and then a chapter in a book, uh, an organizing drive by immigrant gravediggers in the Los Angeles Archdiocese. Um, so this was an effort by a small group of men who worked at various cemeteries across Los Angeles um, to win a union contract in the late 1980s. And their effort ultimately fell uh, to a very concerted anti-union campaign on the part of the Catholic church. Um, So I'm interested in exploring coalitional efforts and also kind of bringing in um, more discussions of religious politics and bringing that into our conversations about organized labor in the late 20th century
0: that sounds like such a great topic. Um, I, I, I have a million questions I want to ask about it, but I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to one. How did you find out about that, that that unionization push? How did you find out about that story? That's an amazing story right there.
1: So it came out of oral history interviews for the Coors Boycott Project, actually, because many boycotters are still in Los Angeles. And, you know, in the course of an oral history interview, a number of them talked about how at the at the time that the Coors Boycott ended, um, there were also all these divisions in the labor movement in Los Angeles because of a problem with the Catholic Church. Um, there used to be this notorious uh, Labor Day breakfast in, in Los Angeles every year where the Catholic Church and labor leaders came together, and it ended at about the same time that the Coors Boycott ended, and it turns out it ended because of this gravediggers uh, conflict, and And because of, I I think the conflicts of or the confines of COVID, I ended up focusing on. I I was like, you know, what? I'm going to dig into this because it's local, and I can uh, find local archives. And um, it's just been a really interesting and kind of morbid um, research project. I'm learning a lot about the work of of grave digging and interring remains, and and um, working with families and working with the church, and um, seeing that how that all links to these bigger patterns and labor organizing has been really fascinating.
0: Yeah, I often feel like those are the, 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 the best histories that we can tell, you know, looking at something that people either take for granted or don't even really think about it at all and saying, no, there's a deep and rich history here. This sounds like a great example of that. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Allison Brantley is an Associate Professor of History and the Director of Honors and Interdisciplinary Initiatives at the University of La Verne in Southern California, and is the author of Brewing a Boycott, How a Grassroots Coalition Fought Coors and Remade American Consumer Activism, which came out with the University of North Carolina Press last year in 2021. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Ali.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was great.